with boundless blessings from the Almighty. We sit here in the Torch Center in Houston, Texas, and this is this week's edition of the Parsha Podcast. It is year eight of the Parsha Podcast. I am your host. I am your friend. My name is Yaakov Walby. Rabbi Walby at gmail.com. I am so excited. I am overjoyed to share this Parsha podcast with you. And we have on the docket today two segments, two delightful, fun segments on our Parsha, Parsha's Mishpatim. It's the eighth year of the Parsha podcast, and we are going a bit deeper, deep and deeper. That's the plan this year behind the veneer of the parsha into the subtext of scripture. In our parsha, there's a lot to work with. There are loads and loads and loads of laws in our parsha. Last week, we had the Sinai revelation. And right away, right after the Sinai revelation, we have the laws. And at the end of our parsha, we revisit the Sinai revelation. And today, I want to talk about two of the laws in our parsha. The first one is from chapter 23, verse 5. We have a law. The law tells us that when you see the donkey of your enemy and he is crouching underneath the weight of his burden, don't think you could ignore that. Don't think you could say, oh, that's my enemy. Let his donkey struggle under the weight of the burden, let him suffer. That's not appropriate. Instead, you go and you help him. There is a mitzvah in our parsha in the Torah, that when you see the donkey of your enemy, of course, if you see your friend, you want to help your friend. Your friend, their animal is struggling under the weight of a heavy load, of a heavy burden. Of course, you want to go help them. But what if it's the guy that you cannot stand? He gets on your nerves. He irritates you. He has this, this, this irritating little habit. Or you once got into a shouting match. You disagreed. He offended you. He insulted you. You don't like him. He's your enemy. You don't like him. It's hard to like everyone. It's really hard. Some people are just objectively unlikable. And you see his animal. And his animal is struggling. There is a mitzvah in the Torah, one of the mitzvahs in the Torah, featured in our parsha, chapter 23, verse 5, that you cannot ignore. You cannot abandon your enemy's animal. You go and you help them. It seems pretty straightforward. Maybe it's hard for us to do. But you understand that the Torah is trying to help us improve and, and change ourselves and get past some of our grievances And this is a mitzvah in the Torah. And I want to go a bit deeper as we are required to do on this year's edition of the Parsha Podcast. And I want to examine this mitzvah and some of the commentaries and go a bit deeper. If you read this verse in Hebrew and you have, you know, a fairly good grasp of Hebrew, it seems like there is a problem. The verse says, When you see the donkey of your enemy and they are crouching underneath the weight of the load that's upon them and you perhaps want to flee, you want to abandon him, azov ta azov imo. Now the word azov typically means to abandon. And it's not clear the verse is seeming to tell us that you should not abandon your enemy's animal. Instead, you should go help it. You should go support it. You should go remove some of the burden. You should go prop it up. But the word that it uses seems to imply the opposite. Azov ta azov imo. You should, you should go abandon with him. It seems like it's a little bit of a unusual word to describe what the verse is telling us to do. So, of course, Rashi always is going to address these questions. And he says that, yes, the word azov typically means to abandon. If you want to leave, you want to abandon, it's azov. But in this context, it means to aid, to help. And Rashi does this frequently in his commentary. He says, well, there's multiple meanings for a given word. And in this context, it means to aid, to help, to assist 
And he brings some precedents. He says, well, if you look at Devarim, Deuteronomy chapter 32, it says the word Azov in this context. And in the book of Nehemiah chapter 3, there are other examples, precedents, to this idea that the word Azov can, in fact, mean to help. And thus the verse is telling us, don't abandon him. Instead, go help him. That is Rashi's commentary. And that's how he explains this verse. Now, the Unculus translation, he says something a bit different. And when I saw this last year, I said, okay, I gotta, I gotta file this away to share with my friends on the Parsha podcast. Now, Unculus, of course, he was a convert and he wrote the first sanctioned translation of the Torah. And any standard edition of the Chumash of the Torah, you will have on the inner margins, you'll have the commentary. That's right. It's really a translation, the translation of Unculus. He was actually a relative of one of the Roman emperors. And when he converted, I think it was his uncle, was very displeased with the decision of his nephew. And he sent a bunch of legions. And we talked about this in the past. He he tried to persuade or to really arrest Unculus, and he was unsuccessful. And thus, Unculus remained ours, and he wrote this incredible translation of the Torah, which became accepted by the sages, and it is considered to be authoritative in its explanation of the Torah. And he says something different than Rashi. The word Azov, in fact, means to leave, to abandon. And the verse is telling us, when you see the animal of your enemy, and it's struggling, it's got a heavy load in its back, and its legs are unsteady, and it could collapse. And in your heart, you're like, yes, finally, revenge. I can't wait to see this animal collapse. And the Torah says, no. Azov ta'azov imo, abandon with him. The word abandon in this context, in fact, means abandon. Not, not like Rashi. Rashi says it means to help. Uncle says no. Abandon. Abandon what you have in your heart. That enmity, that hatred, that dislike that you have in your heart against that person. And go help them. We are going to translate the word azov in its more common usage. And that means to abandon. But we're not telling you, says Uncle, we're not telling you to go abandon your friend. Oh no. Abandon that hatred that you are clutching, that you are grasping in your heart, that you are maintaining in your heart. Abandon that. Unload that from yourself. Disencumber that from your heart. Unburden yourself from that hatred. What an amazing idea. The verse is telling us, you have an enemy. You have someone that you don't like. There's someone who irritates you, who rankles you. Someone who you just don't get along with. And we may say, I think this will be the prevailing attitude. Listen, you can't be friends with everyone. You don't get along with everyone. Not everyone is meant to be friends. Not everyone can you develop a strong relationship with. Some people, they're just not for you. The Torah is telling us that there's a mitzvah to unburden ourselves from that feeling. And when they need help, they need a hand, we go help them and we don't do it begrudgingly because it's a mitzvah. I hate your guts, but I'll help you nonetheless because the Almighty says so. No, don't clench your nose and help them. The hatred that you have, it's a burden on your heart. And there's a way for you to find love in your heart for even the person that you hate. And the Torah is instructing us to unburden ourselves from that hatred that we have for others and find some way to make them not a, not an enemy. Find some way. Leave that hatred behind. Go help them. I find this to be interesting because this is a perfect example of the nuance that's featured in the Torah. We have 
a verse. It's only one verse that tells us about this mitzvah. You see your enemy's animal and the animal's struggling under the weight of its burden. And the verse is telling us to go help our enemy. Go help unburden the animal from its load. But the word that he uses is a bit of an unnatural word, and we have this deep insight. Insight number one on this verse, courtesy of the Unculus, translation on the Torah. And it reveals to us that the hatred that we have is a burden that we have in our heart. Abandon that. Leave that behind. Desert that hate behind and go help your enemy. There's no reason why that person must remain your enemy. Let's go a bit deeper into this verse. You see an animal. The animal belongs to someone that you hate. And your instinct, your inclination is to not help them. But instead, you should go help them. And you should abandon your hatred and go find a way to help them in their plight. Now, the Talmud asks a question about this. Talmud says, wait a minute. Are you allowed to hate a fellow Jew? You're not allowed to hate a fellow Jew. So, how is there this verse that tells us there's a person that you hate And you see their animal struggling, and you may be inclined to just let the animal collapse, but no, go help them. Wait wait a minute. Is it permissible to hate another Jew? Don't we have a verse in scripture? This is in Vayikra, Leviticus chapter 19. You should not hate your brother in your heart. So, I don't understand, says the Talmud. How is it possible for someone who is following the Torah to have another Jew that they hate? So, the Talmud says, well, actually, there is one circumstance, there's one situation in which it is permissible to hate a fellow Jew. Okay, what's that? If you see another Jew and they're doing a terrible, grievous sin and you're, you're only one witness, it's not like you could summon this person to court. It's only you and them. And you walk over to them and try to rebuke them, try to get them to repent, to, to, to stop doing what they're doing. And they ignore you and they say, I don't care. Now, you don't have the ability to go summon this person to court and try to get the authorities involved because you're only one one witness. You need to have two witnesses for any proceeding in a court. But the Talmud tells us that in this instance, where you know for sure that there's a rotten apple, there's someone amongst our people, that they maybe profess to be righteous, but you've seen them, you've witnessed them do something very egregious, very immoral. And you're just one person and you try to get them to rectify their ways and they just ignored you. They just blew you off. In that case, that's the one exception where you are permitted, says the Talmud, to hate your fellow Jew. And thus, the Talmud reveals to us That this situation featured in our Parsha, where there's someone that you hate, and you see their animal struggling, and you may be inclined to not help them, you should help them nonetheless. Thus concludes the Talmud. But there's a, a little bit of a complicated question featured in the commentaries. Now, you have to pay attention because there's there's a few moving parts here. Suppose there are two animals that are struggling or that need help. One animal, one person who owns the animal, 
Well, the animal, it's got a very large burden on its back. And you need to help the owner to remove all those packages, all those satchels on its back. And then there's another person and they also have an animal and they also need help. But unlike the first person who needs help unloading his animal, person number two needs help loading the animal. The person has all the packages that they need to transport on the ground and they got to lift it up and put it on top of the back of the animal. So there's a mitzvah to help both people. Both the person that needs the animal unloaded and the person that needs the animal loaded. Now, which one of those two would have priority? Think about it. Two animals, two owners, two people, each with their animal, and you you have to help both of them. But which one would you help first? Would you help the person go load his animal that they need to take to their destination? Or would you help the person who needs the animal to be unloaded? The animal has arrived at its destination and now the animal's laden with cargo and you need to help the owner unburden the animal. Which one would come first? So the Talmud tells us that the law is that you must help the person unload his animal before you help the person load the animal. And the reason for this is because there's an animal here. And yes, both these humans need help. But the animal, one animal has a very heavy burden on its back and it's suffering under the weight of that load. And we're very progressive here. The Torah is very progressive. Already thousands of years ago, this idea of not causing unnecessary pain to animals, that's a law in the Torah. And the Talmud debates is the prohibition against causing pain to animals. Is that a rabbinic prohibition or is that something from the Torah? Was that originally part of the Torah or was that added on by the rabbis? But regardless, there is a requirement for us to make sure that we're not causing any undue pain to animals. And therefore, all things being equal, we have to help the owner unload his animal before the other owner load his animal. That's what the Talmud says. However, this is why I said there's a few moving parts here. Forgive me if it's a little too complicated here. Suppose, the Talmud tells us, suppose the two people with the two animals, one needs the animal loaded, one needs the animal unloaded. Suppose the animal that needs to be unloaded. That's like your best friend. You're chums. You go back. You, 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 you're, this is like, this is your best bud. This is your bestie. And their animal needs to be unloaded. And then there's the other guy. This is the guy you can't stand. This is the guy that you hate. This is the person that just rubs you the wrong way. And their animal needs to be loaded. So you and I would say, well, who comes first? This is yet another reason to help unload the animal before loading the other animal. Because after all, I'm unloading the animal of the person that I like, my friend. So there's two reasons to prioritize the unloading of the animal because A, it's unloading, you're relieving the pain, the pressure from the animal and B, it's the person that you like. And yes, of course, we'll help my, my enemy as well, but we'll do that afterwards. Says the Talmud, no. If your friend needs their animal unloaded and your enemy needs his animal loaded, you help your enemy. And the reason why it's because by you helping your enemy, you're alleviating some of that enmity that existed between you and them. And that's very difficult to do as well, to go help your enemy 
It's really hard to do. And in order to do that, you have to overcome the Yitzhara. You have to triumph over your evil inclination. And what is life about, if not for triumphing over our evil inclination? And therefore, in this case, and again, I apologize if we need some diagrams here, where you have two animals, the animal of your friend, your beloved chum bestie, that needs to be unloaded, and the animal of your enemy that you cannot stand. And that animal needs to be loaded. You help your enemy first. Why? Because even though from the perspective of the animals, it's more important to unload than to load, but what's a more difficult thing? And what's going to install more love between you and humanity when you help your enemy? That's a hard thing to do. And that's going to radically change you. And therefore, that, the loading of the animal of your enemy that has priority. Thus concludes the Talmud in the book of Bav Metziah on page 32b. And here's the question. If the Talmud elsewhere tells us that your enemy is not someone that you just can't stand because you're not allowed to hate someone just because you can't stand them, the enemy is only the person that you know is a sinner you saw them sinning and they didn't repent. And you're only one person, so you cannot summon them to court. If that is the definition of a hater, well then, why would I prioritize helping them? Why would helping them be more difficult? It means if hatred is just, you know, something personal, if hatred is just something personal, well, it's hard to help someone that you hate just because you have some personal animosity towards them. But if the only tolerable, allowable hatred is for someone who is a sinner against God, then why is it difficult to help them? Why would I have to overcome my Yetzirah to help them? That's the question of Tosos. And again, I know this is a little bit difficult to follow, and I apologize, but this is worth it. Because his answer is just magnificent. If I hate someone, says Tosos, I hate them for very good reasons. But you know what happens? I hate them And the rule is, the person that you hate, even if it's justified, even even if it's as a result of righteous indignation, that person will hate you back. Why? Because there's a cardinal rule based upon a verse in Proverbs, kemayim ponim el ponim, like water. Water reflects. Humans are like water. The feelings that we have towards others, that's the feelings that they will feel towards us. So I hate someone. Why do I hate them? Because they're a sinner. I saw them sin. And I couldn't send them to court because after all, I'm only one witness. But I hate them for righteous reasons. Well, what happens now? They begin to hate me based upon the rule. Hatred begets hatred. Oh, and then they hate me. And what does that spawn within me? I'm going to hate them because they hate me and I'm going to reflect back at them the hatred that they have towards me. The hatred will very quickly escalate beyond the righteous indignation that started off as and there's going to be mutual hatred and real enmity and thus if I hate someone ultimately it's going to be difficult for me to help them because the disdain will be real and emotional. And it's not going to just remain a matter of righteous indignation. And thus for me to help them would be suppressing of the Eight Sahara. This is a powerful idea. You may hate someone for very good reasons. But once that happens, it's likely to kickstart a cycle of hatred. You're going to hate them for good reasons. Yes, sure. 
but they will begin to hate you, maybe for not such justified reasons, and then you'll begin to hate them as well, also for not such justified reasons. And thus, it's not permitted to hate anyone. And my grandfather, blessed member, used to always say that his teacher, the great Rabbi Rucham, used to say that only a great person is allowed to hate someone. Because to have the righteous indignation where you're hating someone because they're corrupt and they're not living up to their potential and they are a sinner against God, to do that without allowing yourself to be drawn into personal hatred, personal enmity, and having that relationship devolve not based upon righteous reasons, justified reasons, but based upon just the natural course of human relations, and that is when I hate someone, they hate me and I hate them back, and it just escalates from there. That, to be able to do that, to be able to have that Chinese wall separating, so to speak, your your feelings, your emotions versus what you know, your righteous indignation, that is something which is very hard and only the righteous should do it. And thus, maybe we shouldn't have any haters at all. And even the sinners, we find we find a way to perhaps love them. Now, I want to suggest perhaps another idea. The Talmud tells us that when there is a dilemma, a choice, I have to help two people, and I can only help one first and then the other one. And my hater, my enemy, well, they need their animal loaded. And my my lover, my friend, my bestie, they need their animal unloaded. Who do I help? I help my enemy. Why? Because lachuf es yitzro adif, to overcome his yetzahara, well, that takes priority over all. I want to suggest the Talmud does not identify which person's yetzahara is being suppressed over here. Now, the way everyone interprets this Talmud is that, well, it's very hard for me to help my enemy. And therefore, let me help my enemy because then I will suppress my Yetzirah. That's how this Talmud is simply understood. I want to suggest that maybe, just maybe, we're suggesting a novel idea here on the Parsha podcast. Maybe the Talmud is telling us that by me helping my enemy, And again, the enemy. Who's the enemy? It's the sinner. By me helping the sinner, the Yetzirah will be suppressed. But who's the Yetzirah? Maybe it's a reference to the sinner's Yetzirah. What happens when you're a sinner? And then you see people who care for you, who love you, who are willing to help you even though you're not really deserving of their help. Who knows how that will help the sinner overcome the Yitzhara? When we see people that are not behaving in the proper way, they're not living up to their potential, they're doing things that are self-destructive, they're doing things that are self-harmful, they are hurting their relationship with the Almighty. They're hurting their relationship with their friends. They're damaging their future. There's someone that the Talmud tells us, this is someone that you're allowed to hate. They're a sinner. But when their animal needs help, you help their animal first. Why? Because that suppresses the Yitzhahara. Maybe that's telling us that it suppresses the Yitzhahara of that person. We, of course, are inclined we gravitate towards tough love. This person has it coming. They're a sinner. Hashem hates them and I hate them as well. And let them suffer. That's our instinct. Perhaps what the Talmud is revealing to us, what the Torah is telling us, help them. Show them some care. Give them some love. Assist them 
Yes, you have your friend you need to assist. You'll get to the friend later. Help your enemy. Help the person that you know is a sinner. Because who knows what kind of wonders that will do towards helping them in their journey of overcoming the Yitzhara. I want to end off with one more incredible idea on this verse. This one is courtesy of the Baal Haturim. Isn't it amazing? We have a verse that seems so simply understood. It's so straightforward. And then we put it through the lens of year eight of the Parsha podcast, deep and deeper. And we see all these insights and who is a hater and what does it mean? Azov ta Azov. And I'm stipping all sorts of other stuff. I will tell you. But listen to this. The verse says, when you see the donkey of your enemy rovates tachas masao, crouching, struggling under his burden. Don't say I'm going to abandon them. Instead, go help them. Go aid them. The Balhaturim, one of the great commentators on the Torah, it's a very unique commentary. It's one of my favorite commentaries on the Torah. And he has a very different style than almost all the other commentaries. And one of the things that he does is he finds unusual words or rare words. And he counts how many times in all of scripture does that word appear? You know, most of us, if you were to ask, you know, how many times does a given word appear in scripture? We would, we'd have to go to the computers, right? You have to go to the computers because how else are you going to know, you know, all of scripture, the Torahs, you know, five books. It's only uh, 5,845 verses. It's only 304,805 letters. It's manageable. If you read the parsha every week, maybe after 20 years, you know, you know where the words are. But to know all of Scripture, all 24 books, and to be able to pinpoint how many times a given word appears, that's the kind of mastery that the commentators of your had. And the Balaturim, he had a style of taking rare words and listing how many times they appear in all of Scripture and saying definitively that he lived, you know, 800 years ago, so way before computers, before the transistors, before electricity, before the printing press. He's telling you how many times does a given word appear in the Torah, and he shows in the Torah or in Scripture, and he'll show that there's a certain internal storyline threading all of those instances where those rare words appear. It's like a fascinating way to understand some depths in Scripture, in in the Chumash, in the the Parsha, by saying we have a rare word. It doesn't appear very often. It appears, you know, two times, three times, four times, five times in the Torah, in Scripture. And if you assemble all of them together, and you look at them in their own context, you'll find some sort of storyline that threads between all of these instances. That's one of the styles of this commentator, the Balhaturim. And he says this incredible observation. He says the word rovates, which is the word for our, in this verse that says the animal is crouching. It's rovates. It's crouching underneath its burden. This word appears three times in the Torah. One of them is over here, right? Chapter 23 of Exodus. The animal is crouching under the weight of its burden. And the other two are in very notable places. When Cain was very disappointed in chapter 4 of Genesis, he was very disappointed when God failed to accept his offering. You remember that story, right? Cain and Abel, the first two sons of Adam. They each bring an offering to God. Cain brings an offering. Abel brings an offering. 
and Cain's offering is rejected, while Abel's offering is accepted. And Cain is all depressed. And God tries to comfort him. And he tells him, if you just improve, well, things will improve. Why are you so down? Cheer up, Cain. Be happier. Just improve and all will be well. But if not, if you fail to improve, lefetach chatas rovets at the entrance, sin crouches. That's the second time the word rovates, meaning to crouch, appears in the Torah. The third time it appears is with respect to Jacob's deathbed blessing of his sons. Chapter 49 of Genesis, Jacob's about to die, and he brings his sons, he summons his sons, and he gives them each a blessing. And the son, Yisachar, Issachar, he tells him, you are like a donkey crouching under a heavy load. And the commentaries there explain that that means that Yisachar, he was the tribe of Torah greatness, of Torah scholarship. And he was compared to a donkey that no matter how much you put on it, no matter how much you load on it, it just is able to bear the weight of an incredible, incredible load. And he did that not with packages. He wasn't an Amazon delivery guy. He did that with Torah. You, you would just mass Torah on his back and he would just bear it all. And he was crouching under the weight of all that Torah. The word crouch appears in Scripture three times. Here, in the context of your enemy's animal crouching underneath the weight of its load, with respect to Cain after his failed sacrifice, God tells him at the entrance, sin crouches. And Yisachar, when he is compared to a donkey who is able to carry the weight of an enormous amount of Torah, Says the Balaturim, there's a storyline here. God was telling Cain about the power of the Eitzahara. The Eitzahara is a force implanted within us ever since Adam's sin. And it's trying to lead us astray. And that's why Cain blundered in bringing an improper sacrifice. He didn't do it properly because of the advice of the Yitzhara. And God tells him, if you overcome the Yitzhara, great. And if not, it's crouching. It's ready to pounce. It's going to cause you to sin. That's how it starts. Sin is crouching. And if a person capitulates, then they're like this donkey in our Parsha. They're like the hater who has a donkey. And the donkey is just struggling. It's about to collapse because there's such a heavy weight of sin upon it. How do you remedy that? We have the Yitzhah, the pounce on a person, and now the person is struggling with the weight of all those sins. The solution, the remedy to this problem, well, that is found with Yisachar. He burdened himself with Torah. If you are burdened with the Yitzhah, Burden yourself instead with Torah, and that will defeat the Yetzirah. To me, this is masterful. The whole concept, it's a novel concept, where the words, the unique words that don't appear very frequently in the Torah, they're telling a story. And he reveals there's three places in Scripture where this word appears, and it's a whole story from beginning to end. It's like a whole speech. The Yitzhara wants to pounce on you. When it does, you'll be crouching, about to collapse under the weight of all those sins. And the solution is the third row of eights. The third time the word crouching appears, embody the spirit of Yisachar, undertake the burden of Torah, and that will eliminate the burden of the Yitzhara.
I want to end off with another very famous verse in our Parsha. This is towards the beginning of the Parsha. Chapter 21, verse 24 and 25. It talks about what happens when there is an injury. When a human inflicts an injury upon another human. And the verse tells us, an eye for an eye. A tooth for a tooth. An arm for an arm. A leg for a leg. A burn for a burn. A wound for a wound. A bruise for a bruise. If you cause an injury to your friend, again, this is if you just read the verse, whatever you cost, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, hand for hand, leg for leg, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Rashi tells us right away that this is not literal. Rashi tells us that the Talmud proves that this is not to be interpreted as it seems simply. Don't say that if, God forbid, someone gouges out someone else's eye, well, then their, their eyes gouged out, as you may have interpreted from the simple reading of the verse. Oh, no! The way that this verse is applied is by having the assessment, the evaluation, the appraisal of how much the person would be worth on the open market if they were to be sold with an eye, and if they were to be sold without an eye. And that is what the person who removed the eye of his fellow must pay. That's what the Talmud tells us, and that's how Rashi explains this verse. Now, this is one of two places where this verse appears, an eye for an eye. It's in our parsha, Exodus chapter 21, verse 24 and 25, and then in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 20. And, and again, the Talmud proves conclusively that this should not be interpreted literally. Instead, it means that there's a monetary penalty that is imposed upon he who extracts or damages the eye, eye for an eye, meaning the value of an eye for an eye, the value of a tooth for a tooth, and so on. Hand for hand, leg for leg, burn for burn, wound for wound, and bruise for bruise. That's this verse. And there's an obvious question. If the Talmud proves conclusively that this is a monetary penalty, just say it. Say the value of an eye for an eye, the value of a tooth for a tooth, the value of a hand for a hand, the value of a leg for a leg. Why does the Torah, the scripture, give off the impression, the mistaken impression, that it's supposed to be done literally? You damage someone, someone's eye, your eye gets damaged. You remove their eye, your eye is removed. So it's an interesting question, and the Maharal he says something unbelievable. He says, the Torah is telling us an eye for an eye because really, ideally, in fairness, in justice, it should be that if someone's eye is removed, if someone removes someone else's eye, then the punishment, the fair punishment should be that their eyes are removed. But the Talmud presents a problem with that. The Talmud says, well, what if you have someone who's already blind? And they gouged out someone's eye. Well, there's no way to punish the person who's blind because they're blind already. You can't gouge out their eye if their eye's gouged out already. And we have a principle that the punishment must be even across the board. And therefore, it's not possible for us to remove the eye from the person who did it when they're blind. And therefore, because we have to have a universal rule across the board, the verse, in fact, tells us, Mishpat Echad Yelachem, you have to have one law across the board. Therefore, it's not possible for us to impose this system of justice. And therefore, the only solution that we have is to have the payment system, the payment of an eye for an eye. But the ideal justice system the Torah reveals to us is an eye for an eye. Literally. And that's why the verse says it literally, even though you can prove for the verses that it's not literal, but that's only because of a technicality in the real world, in the ideal world, all things being equal, if we weren't forced 
to have this other system, the most just way to treat such a circumstance is an eye for an eye, literally. And therefore, the morale tells us, suppose, God forbid, someone actually gouges out someone else's eye. Well, you have to pay. You have to figure out how to evaluate, how to appraise how much a person is worth with an eye and how much they're worth without an eye. But a person may think, well, I paid, I'm good. I don't need to ask this person for forgiveness. I paid them for their eye. But the truth is, you have to actually ask them for forgiveness. You have to beg them for forgiveness. Because really, your eye should be removed. That's what should happen. And the only way for you to clean your soul, to cleanse yourself, to really achieve forgiveness, to really achieve expiation, it's only if you A, pay, and B, you get forgiveness. But this idea, it's a, it's a, a little bit of a nuanced concept. That when it says an eye for an eye, even though the Talmud spends a whole page proving conclusively that it's actually a monetary payment, but the verse does indicate that there is, or at least the, the simple interpretation of the verse is that it should be literal, and the morale tells us that really it, it should be literal. And it's only because of a halachic technicality that's not possible to do it. And therefore, we have the payment system, but you should know that that is actually what is just. Now, I have to tell you, I, I read in one of the books that I read on the parsha, I read two stories that made me happy. It brought me joy. And when I read a story that brings me joy, even though I'm not much of a storyteller, I read two stories that that brought me joy. I said, I'm, I'm going to share it with you on the podcast. The first story, the eye for an eye story, it tells of two brothers who received an inheritance. Their father died and the father was very wealthy and they had to divvy up the estate. And the father had an incredible asset in their estate, but he only had one of them. And by the way, this story goes back like 12, 1300 years. It's cited from a very ancient source. The father had in the estate a Torah scroll, but not just any Torah scroll, a Torah scroll written by one of the most famous scribes of our history, a Torah scroll written by Ezra the scribe. And of course, he can't divide the Torah scroll. Only one of the brothers can end up with this priceless Torah. And they both wanted it. So they went to the court to figure out how to divide up this estate. Each one of them, of course, would have been much happier with the Torah scroll and with all the other money and all the other assets. So the court ruled that they have to make just a, a lottery, a rock, paper, scissor. Winner gets the Torah scroll. One won and one lost. So even though the other guy, you know, he was appeased with all the, uh, the rest of the assets of the estate, he was very sad that his brother ended up with the Torah scroll. Okay, so listen to what happened. In the city, there was an apostate. There was a malcontent, a good-for-nothing. And he wanted to cause trouble. So he went to the shul, he went to the synagogue, and he found a place to hide. And he waited until everyone left. And then he opened up the ark and he pulled out the priceless Torah scroll written by the hand of Ezra. And he took a scalpel and he removed one of the letters from the Torah. 
was actually this week's parsha. The verse says in Exodus chapter 23, verse 25, Va'avadtem es Hashem You should serve Hashem your God. The word va'avadtem means to serve. But that same word, if you replace the ayin of va'avadtem with an aleph, you still have the word va'avadtem, but instead of it meaning you should serve, now it means you should destroy. So he chipped off the letter, the letter ayin, and he replaced with letter aleph. He took a, a, a quill and some ink, and he wrote the letter aleph, and he snuck away. And they, of course, are reading the Torah, and they notice this, this mistake. It's the wrong word. It's an aleph instead of an ayin. And of course, now the owner of this Torah scroll is so sad and so depressed because even if you fix the Torah scroll, which you can do, you can, you can fix a Torah scroll that has a mistake. But now it's no longer the Torah scroll written by Ezra. It's written by Ezra and whoever, whoever fixes it. And then the story tells us that his father came to him in a dream. And he told him that there was this malcontent who did this did this terrible crime, but he was punished with the punishment of an eye for an eye. Now, the word that means eye in Hebrew, eye is an E-Y-E, eyeball, it's the Word, the word is ayin, ayin tachas ayin, an eye for an eye. But the word ayin also means the letter ayin. So the letter ayin, the way you say the word, all Hebrew letters are actually words. You know, aleph means a thousand, bays means a house, and so on. Gimel means means a camel, it also means to bestow benevolence, goodness. The word ayin means an eye, but it's also the letter ayin. An eye for an eye, an ayin for an ayin. His father tells him in a dream that this person was punished with an eye for an eye because they removed the ayin from your Torah scroll and their ayin, their eye was removed. They had an accident and that same scalpel that they used to chip off the Torah scroll, it actually slashed their eye and you should go to the shul and go to this in this place and you'll find the uh, disembodied eyeball of this malevolent crook. And the story continues that he went to the he went to the uh, the shul, the place where he had deposited the Torah scroll, and he found that actually the the eyeball of this person. Uh, was was featured there, and uh, the story continues. The father told him in the dream, "Don't fix the Torah scroll, Ezra himself, even though he's passed, you know, thousands of years prior or fifteen years prior. He's going to come fix it." And then he, the, the the story that I read, there's a whole debate if that's legitimate or not, because can dead people write Torah scrolls? But is he dead because he's a righteous person? Righteous people don't die, and so on. That's the story that I read. I thought it was a very interesting story. I liked it, and I said I'm going to share it with you in the podcast. But then, uh, once he was telling stories about about eyes, I read a second story, also about eyes, not related to an eye for an eye, but it's just a a nice follow up. This story made me so happy. It's a story of a of a, of a tombstone in Jerusalem. There's a tombstone. Upon it, it says that this person studied more than 4,000 times the Talmud books of Beitza and Rosh Hashanah. This is someone who died in modern times, died in the 50s. And on his tombstone, it says that more than 4,000 times this person studied the Talmudic sections of Beitza and Rosh Hashanah. 
that's a pretty amazing accomplishment, and it's a very unusual thing to appear on a tombstone. Even if someone finishes, you know, Book of Talmud, that's a great accomplishment. To finish it twice or a hundred times, that's an incredible accomplishment. But two two books to 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 do that four thousand times, more than four thousand times, it's a very strange thing to appear. What's the story? Well, here's the story. This person, he was a, a Torah scholar, and he had an eye condition. And he went to the physician, and the physician told him, listen, you have a very serious eye condition, and I could do a surgery, but you have to know, if I do the surgery, if it works, great. And if it doesn't work, you're going to be blind forever. Do you want to do the surgery? So this person, his name is Rabbi Eliezer Yosef Letterberg. That's the name of the person. He says, give me some time. I need some time to get ready for this surgery. And, of course, you think about what this is like. The knowledge that you may be going blind permanently. That's a terrifying thing. But for a Torah scholar, it's extra terrifying. Because that means that you're able to study Torah. What are you going to do all day? (laughs) God forbid to be blind. It's the worst thing. But to be blind and not to be able to study that's extra bad. So he says, before I go into the surgery, I'm going to memorize two books of Talmud. The books of Beitz and the book of Rosh Hashanah. And once I know them by heart, I'm going to go back to the physician, to the surgeon and say, okay, I'm ready for the surgery. God forbid it doesn't go well. God forbid I become blind forever. At least I'll have these two books of Talmud memorized. And I'll at least have some connection to Torah after the surgery goes bad. But what do you know? The surgery went well. His eyes were healed. His vision restored. His illness remedied. And then he made the following calculation. What would have happened had God forbid the surgery gone bad. Every day, uh, what would I be doing? I'd be studying these two books of Talmud, the book of Beitz and the book of Rosh Hashanah. But now God, in his benevolence, he made sure that the surgery went well. And now I'm not going to study the Almighty's Torah? I have to study these two books of Talmud as if I went blind. As if this is all I had. And thus, every single day, he reviewed these two books, the, the books that he knew by heart, the books that he prepared for his surgery. He studied them every day. And on his tombstone, it says, he reviewed and reviewed and reviewed these books of Talmud more than 4,000 times. I absolutely love this story. I love this idea of someone saying, well, what's going to be with my Torah? That, that's what that's their concern when they're going into surgery. And then it works out well, but they know this by heart now. And they say, I can't, I cannot be that I'm going to learn less. I'm going to study my story less now that he did this great favor for me of healing me, of allowing the doctor to be successful in the surgery. I'm going to study as if I went blind. And 4,000 times, 4,000 times he reviewed the books of Talmud, of Beitza and Rosh Hashanah. And the story concludes that at his funeral, one of the eulogies cited the very famous story about a person who died. And his whole life he had spent studying one book of Talmud, the book of Chadira, and then he died. And this fellow, at his funeral, there was this woman that appeared that no one knew, and she was bewailing him. And they asked her, what's your name? And she said, well, my name is Khadija. I'm the Talmud, the book of Talmud of Khadija. And this person spent his whole life studying me, and therefore I'm taking care of him. I'm going to bring him into paradise. And this person who was given the eulogy says, if we had the eyes to see. You know who we would see with us? We'd see two people. We'd see the book of Talmud, 
the, 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 the embodiment of the book of Talmud of Beitzah and the book of Talmud of Rosh Hashanah for this person who studied it four thousand times. I love the story. I know it has nothing to do with the parasha. It relates. It was only an addendum to the story about the eye for an eye, but it made me happy. It brought me joy. I don't know. What, what can I say? This story made me happy. It brought me joy. So if it brought me joy, maybe it'll bring you joy as well. And I appreciate your attention and your time. And of course, your love and your listenership. And I have some good news to announce. Please, God, in the next couple of days or weeks, but in the very near future, we're going to be hosting our annual fundraiser. So stay attuned for that. It's your annual opportunity to support the great work of Torch from the Torch Center Houston, Texas. I appreciate your listenership. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. A splendid, terrific, uplifting, invigorating, and enjoyable Shabbos upcoming. And please, God, with the help of the Almighty, with the unending help of the Almighty, we will talk again next week. Of course, my email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com.